Please enjoy this rebroadcast of a previous show with my guest from Floodplains by Design. The Floodplains by Design Coalition is seeking funding in the 2017 Washington Legislative Session for 15 to 20 projects on rivers throughout Washington, including on the Puyallup, Skokomish, Skagit, Yakima, Snoqualmie, and Dungeness Rivers. Hello and welcome. I'm Gary Scheip. Thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. Joining me today is the Strategic Partnerships Director, Bob Carey, from the Washington chapter of the Nature Conservancy. Bob, welcome. Thanks for coming this morning. Thanks very much for having me, Gary. You know, I, I'm glad you're here. The The Northwest is known for many things, and one of the most prominent, I suppose, is people's love of the outdoors, and that leads us to, you know, wanting to take care of it and preserve it, and it's groups like the Nature Conservancy that do some of that you know, big picture stewardship thing of, of these places uh, for us. And so a lot of us take that for granted. So I'm glad to have you in here today and talk about uh, kind of a pretty cool project that you that you are uh, leading at the Nature Conservancy. And uh, it's going to be exciting about our rivers uh, sometimes that cause us a little trouble and, and how we harness them or how we mismanaged them maybe in the years past. But uh, uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation, but first let me just uh, set some basics, I guess, for folks that that might not know. Okay, the Nature Conservancy, right? You, you're a international, right? I was about to say national. International, you have a global reach, right? This is a nonprofit that's been around for quite a while, right? Yes, the Nature Conservancy is the leading global organization focused on conserving lands and waters that life depends on on the planet. So we work in every state in the nation in several dozen countries around the globe. Yeah, and um, give the folks a, a quick once-over on some of the projects you've done over the years and maybe what your focus is more like in these days. Because I'm, I'm recalling a, when I first heard of you, maybe 20-some years ago, the Nature Conservancy was all about buying up big parcels of land, and I'm thinking the rainforest, so that it wouldn't be cut down and, and you know natural life could continue the way it's supposed to. That's certainly our roots uh, here in Washington and elsewhere around the country and globe. In Washington, you know, for years we were really focused on buying and protecting those lands that were most important to fish and wildlife, from places like the Skagit River to out on the coast across the state. Uh, and we still that's still very much part of our uh, business operations today, although. Uh, in, more at much larger scales than we did historically. Yeah. Okay. So you do have a reach in every state. And here in Washington, um, you guys have been working on, like you said, the schedule. I guess let me set this up with, um, I don't know, the news headlines. If people watch TV, especially the last big weather system that went through the Midwest, uh, we saw the flooding along the Missouri and Mississippi and the, the smaller rivers uh, that people can't remember the names of in uh, Oklahoma and uh, Wisconsin and Min Minnesota that... Uh, we end up <laughs> humans. I'll, I'll take the blame, okay? I'll be the bad guy here. We humans over the years have thought we've been managing our rivers correctly because we want to build... People naturally end up wanting to live by the water and a river and a, a nice flat bottomland, they used to call it, right? Good sediment and, and good soil to farm on and, and a city grows up there and turns out uh, it's a floodplain. <laughs> and uh, we've really, you know, think we then for years kind of oh well let's drain the swamp or let's build levees and dams and that's the way we'll get around but that that's caused us problems now that we've been doing this for a couple hundred years on this continent right that's exactly right gary um floodplains <clears throat> are very attractive places for people as well as fish and wildlife but they're they're flat <clears throat> easy to build 
adjacent to water, which we're attracted to sort of aesthetically, but those also used to be our transportation corridors. Right, right. Uh, the alluvial soils and floodplains are very productive for agriculture, so much of our settlement and development through the years has been in Floodplains. Yeah. Of course, we call them floodplains for a reason, <laughs> okay. right? Okay, there's step one here. Floodplain. What, what does that really describe? Is there a definition that everybody agrees on? I mean, we're talking about floodplains here this morning, folks. What is a floodplain, Bob? Well, the, that's a more complicated question than, than you probably want to get in, okay. involved in. There's legal definitions, there's regulatory definitions, oh, yeah. there's ecological definitions. I but the insurance si- companies have their own definition. Absolutely yeah. right. But the simple definition is floodplains are those places where water goes during flood events. Yeah. And the reason, the natural, let's go back to nature. Mother Nature's idea for a floodplain, what what goes on there? I mean, why is it necessary? Why can't we just channel the water down, you know, between two high levees and, and let it dump into Commencement Bay? Because okay. there is often a lot of water. And... Floodplains are essentially nature's coping mechanism for these huge volumes of water that come during storm events. Yeah. It gives the place, uh, it gives the water a place to spread out and slow down, making it less destructive. So flooding never became a problem until we built in harm's way, essentially. And that's what causes the catastrophes. So like, like in our area here in the Pacific Northwest, especially I'm thinking... Uh, late October and November through December, when we get some heavy rains and it's not really snowing yet up in the mountains and it all is rushing down, uh, and we see like <laughs> places like Fall City and Carnation, uh, the streets and roads are underwater between uh, one side of the valley and the other. It's because what used to be the floodplain, as uh, I don't know, would act like a sponge to soak up and let this water sit for a while. We ask it to go right down a uh, a few channels, and it comes. It can't go into the what used to be nature's floodplain. Comes up over the banks, and there goes downtown Duval or whatever. I don't know. That's exactly right. There's it forces the water downstream, doesn't give it a place to spread out, slow down, but also be stored. And so you get more as you move down further down in the watershed towards the coast. You have more and more of this water being funneled quicker to those areas which means you have more water in those lower-lying, more coastal areas, and the flood threat, the flood risks e- increase as a result of those those levees and entrainments. Yeah, okay. So now let's get to uh, your role. You've got a, a role, Strategic Partners Director of the uh, Floodplains by Design Project, right? So designing floodplains, is, it, is the project just like it sounds, floodplains by design? We want to sort of re-engineer what we think is the right way to do this. Is that right? Exactly. Essentially, what we've been doing for many years is while we derive many benefits from our floodplains, it was weird to talking before, development, agriculture, fish, recreation, uh, many of the things that we care about and appreciate in the Northwest, we manage all those things through siloed programs. Um, through separate agencies Mm -hmm. and and organizations. And what floodplains by design infers is that rather than managing in silos in ways that that have proven unsustainable, ineffective, we're going to manage in a more collaborative, 
fashion to achieve multiple benefits in a more holistic way. So you've got to work with partners, partnership, <laughs> and you find the right relationships. And so this is not um, a an ecological group coming in and saying, here's what you have to do. You are getting groups together, uh, farmers, uh, business owners, uh, wildlife people interested in saying, hey, here's, the, here's what we found may work better than having this area flood every five, six years. Uh, Insurance companies are having to come in and, you know, the homeowners are having to bail out, pile up sandbags, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You're saying if we all work together, we might find a way that eases the, the tension and the, and the problems every few years when the, when the water does flood too much. Is that, was that what the partnership part of this is? Exactly, exactly. And so the Nature Conservancy has done this in Puget Sound and elsewhere around the country through the on-the-ground, you know, local, community-driven work we've done, where we've brought flood control districts, farmers, environmental groups together to figure out how you manage these systems more sustainably so that you have the fish and wildlife habitat you need, but you also have safer communities. What we've done with floodplains by design in Washington is help uh, convene and put together a statewide partnership with State Department of Ecology, Puget Sound Partnership, and a whole variety of local and federal partners, tribal partners as well, to create the mechanisms and incentives so that other folks can do this across the state. Oh, cool. So that really sounds positive, especially for, you know, I'm thinking back 20 and 35 years when uh, environmental groups got really started maybe after the first Earth Day in the early 70s and said, hey, here's what's wrong and here's how to fix it. And yeah, it impinged on other people's way of life. So now you get people to say, hey, you know, you get flooded every year or two. What do you tell a farm? Let's use an example. Okay, real life examples. You've had success in, let's go with, is it Skagit River area? Correct. Okay, let's talk about the Skagit River. Who, what was the problem? Who got together and how did we sort of solve a problem? So we first got involved in this work at a place called Fisher Slough. Um, this is located in the Skagit River estuary, down in the River Delta, in a place that has been highly constrained by levees, as we were discussing before, and as a result, we've lost a tremendous amount of the salmon habitat that's critical to salmon survival and salmon productivity. What we were able to, to do there in cooperation with local landowners, farmers, tribes, um, state and federal agencies, is create a, pro- a project that set back levees along Fisher Slough to restore tidal habitat, tidal marsh habitat that the salmon need, but we did that in a way that improved the flood protection for the neighboring farmland, homes, um, and made that adjacent farmland more productive. Fisher Slough, so this would be where the the Skagit finally dumps into the sound up there. It's near Bellingham. Um, South of Mount Vernon. South of Mount Vernon. Oh, that's right. Well, it does. The, the Skagit flows right past Mount Vernon. This project that's right. was located turned, south. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Skagit. Ins- that, it's a long river, isn't it? It is. <laughs> Starts uh, up in BC. And so, tidal uh, estuary. So, moving back, that was a great farmland area. So, you've talked people into saying, hey, you shouldn't try and farm this close up to this levee in this river. And so, what did you do? How did this all work? And you, you move physically, say, we're going to buy out your land or we're going to talk it, it's worth more for you to not farm this way and move the levy back or part, parts of all so that? So there's been years of conversation and conflict around salmon habitat restoration in that part of the world uh, because it is rich agricultural land 
and it's important to the local economy, it's important to the region, and the farmers there didn't want to lose farmland. They've lost a lot to development. They didn't want to lose more to salmon habitat restoration. What we were able to do with the leadership of you know local farmers, including the landowner that, that came to us in, initially, was to site and design a project that achieved multiple benefits. And because the quote-unquote restoration project, the habitat restoration project, also delivered flood and drainage benefits to the agricultural community, they became very supportive of the project. So you can design, you can... Uh look at the way a river flows and what the estuary, the, at, especially at the tidal part here, and say, if we redesign some of these levees and actually let it overflow this way and that way once in a while and not forcing it all this way, that you wouldn't be underwater every once in a while. Is that... It's exactly right. And it doesn't just... I mean, this applies to coastal areas as well as upstream river in areas, right? If, again, if you give the river or the water, more room to spread out, Mm. you can absorb more of the flood water naturally. You're employing nature essentially to do the job of what we've relied on, very costly engineering work to do historically. And so that's going to save that farmer from having to file a flood insurance uh, claim every once in a while. Or repeatedly, you know, rebuild the levees that have been damaged during flood events. So that might be a county or a city municipality that says, this is going to work for them too. Yes. And at the same time, so then those places where it will flood naturally, that's good for the environment, the natural ecosystem as well, I'm guessing, right? Back that's exactly nature. that's exactly right. So would a uh, a river let me go to I don't know the Stillaguamish or something, um, or maybe this was it the Snohomish that uh, I'm getting them all mixed up, Bob. <laughs> where, where a little further east of here is good, like uh, bird hunting, you know, areas too. I mean that to save a place like that that is a floodplain, uh, hunters might appreciate that too, that the ducks would then find more natural place for them to migrate into and through. That's absolutely right. That is? Okay. You know, floodplains by design is about uh, advancing a more integrated or multiple benefits approach to floodplain management, where we're trying to figure out how to manage as cost-effectively as possible to to delivering that variety of benefits the society gets from our floodplains, which includes clean water, fisheries, hunting, other recreation, recreational pursuits, but while also reducing flood risk significantly um, and helping you know, support a viable, productive economy. Sounds like a win-win-win, I guess if you keep naming the interested parties, win-win-win situation. We're talking this morning with Bob Carey. He is the Strategic Partnerships Director with the Nature Conservancy and about the project Floodplains by Design. And people can look this up online. I hope I get this right. Actually spelled out on the web, floodplainsbydesign.org, right? Correct. Oh, that's easy. Floodplains by Design. It's part of the Nature Conservancy, and that has their own website or two. The, the web, uh, nature.org is the Nature Conservancy's, like, big-time national, national or global org. website. And the chapter one is called Washington Nature. Okay, WashingtonNature.org. People can find out more about the Nature Conservancy here in Washington State because you do a lot more than just floodplains by design. Uh, Nature Conservancy has a lot of, I don't know, 
things, a lot of projects going on all the time. But floodplainsbydesign.org. So uh, it sounds like you, who are these partners? you got to talk to partners and find them, and, uh, and that's a key part because it used to be, like I said, you know, loggers versus uh, environmentalist type of thing, farmers versus fish. So uh, what's the first uh, you must get to breach that on a level of trust to talk to folks that are at least traditionally cloistered in a it's us and it's them? How do you break those walls down, and, and where does that start? Well, again... The Conservancy uh, has led projects on the ground work like this in, in, in a couple different watersheds around the state historically. At this point in time, what we've tried to do is through f- this statewide floodplains by design partnership and program is create the incentives and mechanisms by which anybody can do that, not dependent on the Nature Conservancy mm. at all. Okay. Right? The Floodplains by Design grant program, administered by the State Department of Ecology, funds this kind of collaborative floodplain management work. And anyone can do it. The projects that are funded are locally driven, but does require that those local stakeholders and interest groups and floodplain managers work collaboratively together to develop a more integrated vision and plan. Well, let's give us another example or two. Um, Maybe let's go to, I don't know, um, Orting is a pretty good example, right? They're on the, they're kind of between the Puyallup and the Carbon River. I mean, that is a floodplain, right? It's between these two rivers. If you look at the uh, a Google Earth and you say, well, this is a really flat part and it's between two rivers, that must have been historically a floodplain, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. And they get a problem every few years with one or two of those rivers, right? What did you guys, what happened down there? So the the Ording project, uh, the, or the city of Ording, received one of the first floodplains by design grants issued by the state, um, and it was you know another great example of how to work with nature as opposed to against nature to develop a you know a win 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 solution. Yeah. What they did there, working in partnership with the county and the tribes, the city of Ording, was set back the levee for about a mile and a half through right through along the Puyallup River, right through the city of Ording so that they got a state-of-the-art setback levy, but they created much more room for those floodwaters to spread out and slow down. So 2006, they had a flood on the Puyallup, which peaked at about 16,000 cubic feet per second, led to the biggest, state, the biggest flood evacuation in state history. Schools were flooded, homes were flooded, businesses were closed, roads were closed. It was a real uh, catastrophe. Almost every... Business in that town and home it was under some water. Yeah. Right. F- fast forward to 2014, a year after they received the Floodplains by Design grant, and with that and other funding support, they had completed the setback levy project. And as a result, a flood event of almost exactly the same size led to about a handful of people evacuating voluntarily and virtually no flood damages. The same amount of water, same size of flood event came down the river and because of the change in how this river and the flood area was designed, hardly anyone was impacted? Exactly. Wow, that's awesome. More room for the river to do its thing. What it's trying to do naturally and so the community was protected um, but because the way the project was designed to achieve these multiple benefits, you also have 100 new acres of salmon habitat in there, including uh, what is now, I believe, the largest 
salmon spawning side channel on the entire uh, Puyallup River. You have a mile and a half greenway right adjacent to the city, um, a new trail. You know, it's uh, again, as you said a few minutes ago, Gary, it was a win, win, win. <laughs> and so, um, and what does that look like? So, when you say a setback levy, are we talking just changing where it is, or is it engineered? I mean, is that a new discipline in engineering how to design levees so that a flood, a river can flood gradually? Or <laughs> I don't know, what does it take and what does it look like? I don't know, from the air, would it be something? Unusual for us to it, it well it's designed quite similarly to most of the levees we see around the region and country. The difference is the location really historically, we tended to build them you know right on the river bank yeah uh, and this is set back you know what they did in Ording was essentially make the river the width between the levees on both banks of the river two to four times larger than it was uh-huh. So just a huge amount of additional space for that water to spread out. And, and go ahead. And also to, you know, create this open space and habitat for fish and wildlife. And did so who had to give somebody had to give something up then people must have been on that land or businesses and how were they accommodated or how or if it wasn't there that must happen elsewhere is is that part of this project? Yes, and I'm not sure on that particular project the exact land history, but in many of these cases where they're doing setbacks, there's, you know, the land acquisition has to occur. Generally, mm-hmm. that's done by the, you know, the city or county government, so, but others can do it as well. So a county, because uh, I'm trying to think, I, I saw on your website over this past week while I was, I was learning more about this, and by the way, it is a great website, folks, uh, floodplainsbydesign.org or washingtonnature.org. I was a, a homeowner talking about how he used to get flooded out, uh, and now he he lives somewhere else. But there was some kind of money. Is that part of this grant? Is it the State Department of Ecology and municipalities, counties come up with some money and grants? Are there federal money involved with this? And Department of Ecology manages the state floodplains by design grant program. So they the state legislature appropriates funding. They've gotten eighty million dollars over the last three years to allocate to different you know, multiple benefit floodplain projects mm-hmm. across the state. And acquisition, you know, is one of the things, one, one of the things you can use that money. But they've tried to design that program so that it's very flexible because every situation is different in terms of what's needed in terms of land, in terms of what's needed in terms of engineering, in terms of what the community priorities are, whether they want a trail or recreational access or whether there's, you know, adjacent agriculture that they want to protect and ensure that there's good infrastructure that can keep that ag land viable. So it sounds like this is another part of it I didn't realize. You get the whole community involved in the decision-making process. What kind of a community do we want? And let's take our time and design how we should (laughs) work with the river and Mother Nature to figure that out. Is that that answer B here? Is this equation? Correct. How do we we think how do we design the system to maximize those different interests, those different priorities that that community has most cost effectively? And that must be very different than people thinking the government's going to come in here and tell us what to do. So what is the um, response then? So this must be very, I'm guessing, you tell me the answer, positive after we've done this a couple of times, yes or no? Yeah, the, the, the reception to this approach is been overwhelmingly positive. Sure, there's a few, you know, people 
that have some questions, yeah. perhaps a little cynical, but on the whole, very positive response because it it now you know allows and in fact encourages locally driven solutions. Encourages uh, the locals to take uh, a voice in how your community should should look like what it should look like. Right. It, with respect I mean, there to are this no river. <laughs> right. I mean, the way the program works, there are no projects if, if there's not a locally driven and developed solution, right? They're the ones that make the proposals. Makes perfect the gov- sense. The government's not coming in to tell people what to do. It's up to the communities to come up with the answers. That's awesome. Uh, we are talking to Bob Carey this morning. He is the Strategic Partnerships Director uh, on the Nature Conservancy's project Floodplains by Design. Look it up, folks. Floodplainsbydesign.org on the web. Uh, we're going to run out of time before too long, Bob, so I want to make sure. What's, uh, like, what's on the agenda for the coming, I don't know, years? You got, like, this is a, these are big projects. They must take years to design and think about and figure out and then actually accomplish a lot. I'm figuring a lot of heavy equipment's involved. Uh, what's coming up in the next couple of years, maybe, that you could talk about? Well, at this point in time, Ecology has released a request for proposals for what will be the third round of floodplains by design projects that we hope to be to help, hope to help fund in the state. Um, so proposals will be coming in the door at the end of this month, uh, screened over the next year, and kicked to the legislature for the next biennium. So um, ensure, you know, uh, working with Ecology and other partners to ensure that there's a strong suite of really high, you know, high-impact projects that are developed and that ultimately they get funded by the legislature is a, going to be a, a high priority. So the state, legisla- or the state Department of Ecology uh, listens to like you said, these different local voices and say, we got a problem here, we, we think this can be addressed with maybe this, and they ask for grants and to be part of this uh, project. Is that how it works? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Not just Puget Sound area? No, this is a statewide, State, statewide are program. Are there things in eastern Washington that we don't even think about here in Puget Sound that are going on? There's some, yeah, there's some great work happening in eastern Washington. Uh, the Yakima River is a, is a great example of where a place where the, the floodplain managers there have been very proactive in f- trying to figure out how to work with the river to develop more sustainable flood protection solutions. And so they've been um, buying up land, setting back rivers, creating a, a safer community in and around the city of Yakima and doing that in a way where you have this wonderful green space uh, that flows through the city now. And one other question I want to ask uh, that I should have a few minutes ago when we were on that other topic of win-win type of thing. Um, the money that the state, that we spend on this, we citizens, uh, is it, are we saving money on, because I'm just thinking of the billions of dollars of uh, commerce that doesn't take place when, you know, and things that get ruined and destroyed during uh, massive floods and weather events. Uh, are they able to measure that uh, as part of the success yet, or has it been too new yet? It's a great question, Gary. I don't have the data right now to say that we're saving money or we're saving X dollars mm-hmm. by through this new approach. What I can say conclusively, though, is a couple things. First of all, in Puget Sound alone, we have about $20 billion of assessed value. So we're talking the values of homes and businesses in floodplains, in addition to billions of dollars more of public infrastructure, you know, roads, water treatment plants, all that. So wow, there's, that's Puget Sound alone. So it gets much bigger when you look statewide. So we have huge investments as a society that are at risk in our floodplains. So we know that. 
We know that we have invested, that we invest as a society millions of dollars annually in flood protection. And we know we invest millions of dollars annually in salmon recovery. And we know despite those millions of dollars investments, flood risk continue to increase. Salmon runs continue to decrease. Water quality continues to decrease. So the recipe we're using now or have used historically isn't sustainable, is not effective. And we have strong reason to believe that this integrated floodplains by design approach is much more likely to deliver substantive cost-effective solutions. Excellent. We were out of time, but that's an excellent way to finish up. Thank you so much. We have been talking today with Bob Carey from the Nature Conservancy and their Floodplains by Design projects. Thank you so much, Bob, for coming in and sharing with us an awesome new project going on in our state. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Gary. Pleasure to be here. Bigger thanks to what the the Nature Conservancy is doing to looking out for the rest of us by uh, watching out for those rivers and floodplains in Washington. Thank you. I am Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community. I hope you've enjoyed this rebroadcast of a previous show about floodplains by design. The Floodplains by Design Coalition is seeking funding in the 2017 Washington Legislative Session for 15 to 20 projects on rivers throughout Washington, including on the Puyallup, Skokomish, Skagit, Yakima, Snoqualmie, and Dungeness Rivers. I'm Kate Daniels. Heart health, that's the goal, as February gives us the opportunity to highlight our heart and bring awareness to how we can take care of this major core organ. Dr. Arush Manchanda is dedicated to helping us learn and be proactive, and he's with us to inspire us to get started now. Dr. Arush Manchanda, good morning, and thank you so greatly for being with us this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Kate, for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your show. You are really an amazing and intriguing man, a cardiologist, so really I feel in that extraordinary place of medicine, and you're a teacher. It seems that you have a passion to really make people understand, and so as we have a chance to discuss your incredible new book, Your Heart House, in that you approach it in such a teaching fashion. So it's like, here you are, people. You own this piece of your anatomy. Let's understand it so you can make the best use of it and keep it healthy. Would you agree that I've interpreted that correctly? You bet. And thank you for a complimentary introduction (laughs) because, you know, we're always talking in today's day and age about patient empowerment you know, shared decision-making, you know, let's get with their doctors and let's figure out what's the best, not only cost-effective, you know, way at which, you know, what would be the best, you know, most efficient and correct way of treating problems or preventing, you know, heart attacks, strokes, cancers, what have you. And one of the things that I have learned, you know, in the last 12 years that I've been deeply engaged in practicing cardiology is that people don't understand the working of their heart. And so they listen to all this information. It's like, oh yeah, I gotta quit smoking and I need to lose weight. I wanna get active and I wanna watch the fats, what I eat and fast food's not good for me. But I don't think they put it in context of their heart. You know, they know that these things are bad, 
but they truly don't understand how it's going to affect your heart. And that leads to non-engagement, right? If I have less clue about how, you know, I'm good at making analogies of how your radio jockey, you know, business works, but if you keep telling me X, Y, Z things about the radio station and I have no clue, well, I mean, I'll keep hearing it and say, oh, okay, this is what they tell us and media is telling us or doctors are telling us. But then I would not engage with that information. I wouldn't absorb it. And so my hope here is to create a movement and I'm hoping other fellow physicians, you know, can join me in truly attacking this problem from a grassroots level and the first step, and I put that on the video on my website also in my mission statement, the first step to system transformation is knowledge. And I think once people start understanding about their heart, how these different risk factors are connected, what kind of lifestyle changes they can make to address this big beast of heart disease or cardiovascular disease, which includes stroke, then we can really start making a change. Absolutely. And I think this education is so critical because the heart is so complex, but I think we just think of it as, well, it's just this organ, not totally understanding all the intricacies. And we don't have to know it really from that medical perspective, but to understand it, as I was reading through this part of our heart house, I thought, oh, this is amazing. I never learned this. I never took biology as a class in school. Perhaps that's where it was taught. I have no idea, but I would gauge that most of us don't understand. So you're stepping in here to help us to gain this knowledge so we can really approach our heart health in a much more deliberate fashion, I think. Yes, I mean, and another video I put on my website is, you know, how it's going to help the heart patients. And one of the common things I see is a young woman who walks into my office and she said, Doc, you know, my primary care doctor said I got a heart murmur and and she's sweating, she's anxious, she wants a test done, you know, yesterday and they heard a murmur and am I going to die of a heart attack? And, and then I calm her down and I say, hey, you know what? Murmur is a door problem, right? So, it, you know, just like I talk in my book or my analogy that I've been using for the last seven years is that your heart is like a house. And just like you have rooms and you have doors to go from one room to the other, the heart has these different chambers and it has valves that allow the blood to go from one room to the next. So when we are talking murmur, a leaky valve, a pig valve, we're actually talking about a door problem. It has nothing to do with the heart attack. And some of these murmurs, as I mentioned in my book, are very innocent. And a lot of people have innocent heart murmurs. There's nothing wrong with it. People, as we get old, just like in your house, the door jams are going to get cold and they will give you a problem. You know, the doors can be jammed a little bit. And same thing happens. We get degenerative valve disease as people in their 80s. You know, a lot of them have aortic sclerosis, mitral valve leaks, and tricuspid valve leaks. And these are all age-related changes which are normal. You know, we don't need to freak out about them. But... Yes, if you have what we call as a plumbing blockage, you know, where the arteries or the coronary arteries or the arteries of the heart that supply blood to it, if they get blocked, that's when you get angina, that's when you get chest pain, that's what puts you at risk of heart attack, cardiac arrest. And these important basics need to be coached to people so they're not unscrupulous doctors out there 
making use of people's anxiety and putting them through, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars of tests. And then also people are, you know, one of my hopes is to build that respect for doctors again, because a lot of people just feel like when they go into the doctor's office, they don't engage because they know, oh, he's going to order a bunch of tests and it's going to cost me so much time. I'm not going there. So my mission is to really help people understand what all this is about so they can then engage with their doctors, empower themselves with this knowledge, and then make a shared decision. You know, shared decision-making is important to reduce cost. You know, it's also important to improve outcomes. And I think this is one of the ways that I have thought about it would be a simplistic way, you know, without spending too much money because we need to educate people. And once the consumer, you know, as the business guys would call it, are educated, they understand what they're dealing with, they understand the risk and benefits of doing a procedure or not, or taking a test or not, then everybody's happy, right? Exactly. And it's really this kind of a formula or approach can be applied to our entire body, all kinds of disease and just health in general. But the focus here on heart is particularly key because heart disease, if we don't realize this, is the really the number one disease, the number one killer of the population, isn't it? Correct. You know, it's the number one cause of death overall for Americans. It's the number one cause of death in women. You know, women all their lives believe like, oh, breast cancer. There's breast cancer awareness associations and there's breast cancer uh, committees uh, across different health agencies. But heart disease has kind of been silent in the back. But believe it or not, it is the number one killer. And you recently saw Carrie Fisher and her mom, you know, Debbie Reynolds, they both succumb to cardiovascular disease, one to heart, heart attack, another to stroke and especially a young death and a sudden death. And these are the kind of uh, shocking stories that, you know, we deal with every day as heart doctors. And we want to put that focus of prevention and the focus uh, back into cardiac awareness uh, in women and overall Americans to say, guys, this is the number one killer. Please pay attention to it. It's partly lifestyle mediated. So Make sure you do correct your lifestyles so you don't end up being a young death. And it's partly engaging with the right doctors and with the right medicine, with the right type of procedures, so you can live a healthy, disease-free, morbidity-free life ahead. Of course, that's the ideal, and that's what we really want to do. And I think we have this opportunity to do so And I think in that way, Carrie Fisher and her mother, Debbie Reynolds, in a way gave us a gift. Maybe it's going to have shocked us sufficiently to realize how vulnerable each of us is. It's not just something that happens way out there, but when we can identify with someone because they're such a high-profile person, I think maybe it drives it home a little more so. Yes, because I think as, you know, things keep happening but they don't get into our forebrain, you know, our, our conscious mind. And I feel a lot of people are addicted to media and TV and that's their primary source of information. So especially, you know, Hollywood. And so I think that 
if there are people who are Kerry's fans and Debbie Reynolds fans, and this is important that hopefully that as they see this happening in front of their eyes, that they will use this to their advantage. You know, I'm a guy who spiritually use all negative experiences and try at least, and I'm mostly successful with God's grace to turn them into positive experiences, you know, lead with an uh, altruistic consciousness. And I feel that there is something to be learned here for people, for me, for you, for all of us. Yes, absolutely. So that nothing has been wasted in that way, that in this particular case, we can say that those two deaths perhaps heightened our awareness so that we are maybe shocked into action to really learn more and become more proactive with our own personal health. Correct. Right. So in the case of Carrie Fisher, it seemed like a sudden death, perhaps because she was in flight, she didn't get the the proper attention. Is that something that we might think of as key if we are feeling or experiencing some sort of a heart episode? I'm not exactly sure what her circumstances were, what was going on with her heart, but if she were, say, in her home, would the outcome perhaps have been different? You know, I haven't really looked into the minute to minute, and I'm not even sure if her story got released, you know, as far as because a lot of these personal health records are supposed to be private, and I'm not sure what was released of the sequence of events. But you bring a really good point, and I pointed out in my book, and I quote it as time is muscle. Okay, so when we're talking about a heart attack, you know, we're talking about plumbing, you know, the artery getting blocked. As the artery gets blocked, the walls go damp. As the walls go damp, the wires start shorting. So a lot of people, you know, that get heart attack, it's not necessarily the heart attack that kills them. It's the shorting of the wires, and we call that cardiac arrest. So, you know, you can have, boom, sudden cardiac arrest. And one can say one in two people that get a heart attack actually get cardiac arrest and they don't even make it to the hospital because you know unless they're revived quickly and shocked back out of that short circuit and that's why you see you know this whole trend of having AEDs you know be available you know which are devices that EMT use people go out and coach in any public area in malls that government has regulated hey we need to have these defibrillators out there because if you see somebody who collapsed on the floor suddenly, put it on, and if it says shock, then go ahead and give the shock. And if it says CPR, call 911 and start CPR because time is muscle, you know, and time is electricity in a way. Because if we can't get that artery open as quickly as we can, first, you know, people are going to get cardiac arrest from the wire shorting. And coming back to my analogy, you know, if you don't open the artery quickly, the walls, you know, which are dampening or now start to get damaged and they settle and, and they cause heart failure. And that person now has to live with uh, a less than best oomph, you know, or pump pumping of their heart. And I talk about how all these things are connected, you know, the plumbing, the electricity, the walls in my book here. And I think that is a key uh, for people to understand. And if they have any warning symptoms of heart attack, like they suddenly start feeling left-sided chest pain going down their arm, up their jaw, increased readiness, impending doom, 
you know, lightheaded, dizzy, feel like passing out, their heartbeats jumping, uh, uneasiness, you know, any warning signs of a heart attack that they need to quickly call 911 and get into the closest hospital and so we can diagnose it appropriately and if it is truly a heart attack, we can take care of it so they don't suffer from any damage. So yes, time is muscle. And in terms of the symptoms that you were just describing for us, uh, Dr. Manchanda, the symptoms are somewhat different for women versus men, aren't they? Correct. You know, years after years, studies after studies have shown us that women can have atypical symptoms. And I have seen it with my own eyes. I mean, just, I guess, yesterday I had somebody... Um, and uh, her only complaints, you know, she came to the emergency room and her only complaints were, oh, I'm just tired. And then the person had some pain, the gastric pain, you know, which means like pain in your stomach area. And the ER doctors said, oh, we checked the EKG. The EKG looks abnormal. But, you know, we ran some blood work and I mentioned, you know, our standard battery of tests in heart disease in my book too and, and the blood work shows there's no heart damage and maybe she just lives like this and with an abnormal EKG and we called the doctors that the you know I called them the plumbers the interventional cardiologists that do the angiograms and they're like oh no she's been having these symptoms for two days and there's no signs of heart damage and the troponin's negative and you know I don't think this is the heart and fortunately you know I've been able to develop some advanced imaging technology here in the small hospital that I direct the cardiovascular services for and I got our cardiac CT and for sure you know just like I suspected the front artery the video maker had a 99% blockage but the lady was lucky that her body had tried to fight it and the flow was still there so she didn't have a heart attack from it just yet and that's what was fooling the emergency room doctors but her EKG was able to pick it up. And so we then finally got her down and got her artery opened. And so heart disease is still very humbling. Every day it humbles me. And I bet there's a lot of heart doctors, if there are a few listening to me, that get humbled by how it presents. And that's what actually keeps us interested in this (laughs) because it's a very labor-intensive job, but it's just so fascinating. And it's the disease that, you know, it always surprises us. It always humbles us. And I think that's important for the listeners to know that if it humbles your heart doctor, you've got to humble you. Take it. Take your symptoms with a pinch of salt. Don't take them lightly. If you feel something's abnormal, seek help. Great. I think we need to underscore that. Be reminded to seek help and not to poo-poo it because I actually have a personal experience in the story of my own mother who did basically that. She was feeling nauseous and she thought, oh, it was nothing. And in fact, she was visiting someone at the hospital, decided to go home and have a rest, but was still feeling unsettled. So called the neighbor and mentioned this and they called 911. In fact, she went to the hospital for her own care and she was having a heart attack. So I think we have to really take some of these symptoms seriously and not just cast them aside. Right. I mean, I was talking to someone yesterday on a radio show and she was asking me the same question about, you know, how do I really differentiate between acid reflux and that? And, you know, the answer is sudden. I mean, if it's something, you know, there are people who 
have more tendency to get heartburns. You know, you had coffee and had ibuprofen uh, or your aspirin that you know kills your stomach and Mexican food or spicy Indian tandoori chicken, you know, things that <laughs> would provoke um, some acid. I get it. I mean, that's something over the years. You know, we all know like we overate. But if it's something sudden, you know, like you're you know, just sitting around doing your normal chores or watching a movie and suddenly you feel nauseated, you feel a pressure sensation on our chest and, uh, you know, that impending doom, it gets you sweaty and uh, that's a very different kind of nausea or GI thing, you know, that could be perhaps the RCA occlusion, you know, the right coronary artery actually supplies the bottom part of the heart. The bottom part of the heart is in touch with the stomach. So when people have inferior myocardial infarction, and again, I touch a little bit about that in my book, that when you have a heart attack at the bottom part of the heart or the backside of the heart, sometimes that can mimic a GI event or it can present itself as nausea and vomiting and hiccups because the vagus nerve runs right by it and it gets irritated. And so it's hard to know when you have the right coronary occlusion, you know, it can be tough for patients, but if it's sudden, you just remember those red flags, sudden, out of the blue, and unexpected, you know, when you wouldn't expect something like this to happen, you can't really figure out what could trigger it. Those, you know, are really big warning signs to take it seriously. This could potentially be a heart attack and get it checked ASAP. So excellent, wise direction. To learn more, and you mentioned that you have this book, this new book, wonderful book, Your Heart House and Artisan's Approach to Understanding Heart Health. It's written in such a way that any of us can understand it. It's not medical terminology. Although it's mentioned, you still have this teacher approach that helps us to really understand and really be able to apply it to ourselves, I feel. Thank you. Thank you again for your comp, you know, compliment there. And I think if you like it, you'll be able to get a lot of information on my website, yourhearthouse.com. It's similar to the title of my book. And uh, there is a blog that we try to update with uh, patient education content every week. There's all different social media platforms that I have asked and requested my team to post the contents that I've given to them, that I've been working on with them for six months. And we worked hard on the videos, you know, patient education videos and other chapters or parts of the book that I feel are relevant. And then last week, we've started now a free newsletter you know, a weekly newsletter that I'm hoping would come out every Wednesday. And I would urge you and, and other listeners to please go and sign up for it. It's free heart education, you know, give some lifestyle tips about heart disease prevention. It will perhaps have some other heart education videos that we've done uh, about the topic of heart awareness. It'll perhaps have some radio interviews as they become available on heart disease prevention, and it would have uh, a lifestyle tip and tons of information for our listeners to learn more and uh, follow me in this journey. I feel the best way to learn is teach, and uh, <laughs> I'm going to learn a lot in this journey myself, and I want to 
thank everybody who's helped me get here and thank others with who I hope I can get to the next level and uh, touch as many lives and save as many lives as I can. Well, judging by your experiences, your education, and this thrust that you have with the book and with reaching out to the public as you are, Dr. Manchanda, I feel that you really are demonstrating that that's your desire is to help us about this disease, heart disease, which is the number one disease that is really crippling, if not killing us. And so it's in our best interests. It's in our hands to make that change. Yes. And, you know, one of the other things when I am sitting with my friends, I tell them that I see, based on my personal experience, that people come in two shades. They're either followers or non-followers. Okay. So the followers, you know, they they go to their doctor's office, whether it's their heart doctor, their diabetes doctor, their kidney doctor, or their primary care GP, and they're like, Doc, you know, you're a god. I'll do everything you tell me to do. And I think it's great, you know, that they have that trust in us. But I still have problems with that because we're not gods. You know, gone are the days of paternalistic medicine. I mean, how can you be 100% sure that everything that's coming out of that person's mouth, including me, is 100% accurate, right? Because how can I, in 10 minutes or for 15 minutes of the time you spend in my office, get everything about you? So I think that to keep me and other doctors in check, you have to educate yourself. Just like when you go out to buy the newest iPhone, don't you ask the questions, how is this different from the other? Or you know, you go out to buy simple grocery stuff, new detergent. I mean, everyday things women do, you know, why do I need to pay this when I can get this? You know, there's a grocery list of things. And I think the same approach needs to enter medicine where rather than just be a believer in everything, because there's so much out there, patients need to engage. And for them to engage, they need to be the ones to educate themselves and ask the right questions. So the person on the opposite side then suddenly switches gear and says oh here's an empowered patient I gotta explain them everything so they understand why we're doing something and that's how we are going to reduce waste and get accurate outcomes so that's one part now the non-followers are people who disengage you know they just shut medicine off and that was the problem before Obama got you know the whole Obamacare act done that uh, about a third of America wasn't insured and they feel like we're ordering tests or the doctors are seeing patients because they want their new Mercedes. <laughs> I put a chapter there for that too, you know, when you're actually trying to help patients. And I think that this will bridge that gap that, you know, it would hopefully bring those non-followers in as they understand, you know, their hearts or their health and understand that, hey, you know, there is a middle ground for all this, and hopefully we can engage those people so they don't show up at the last minute when we have to spend millions in saving their lives. We can catch them early and get them to prevent an expensive event like a heart attack or stroke when we have to see them in the emergency room and take care of them. And then I'm hoping that we can reduce cost and get a better accuracy and better care delivered to people who are believers in us by engaging them and giving them information so they're not over-tested. Exactly. Does that make sense? Oh, 
tremendous uh, sense. And what I see is that you are offering this. You're extending your hand and saying, here, I'm offering this to you. And then it's up to us to accept that. But why wouldn't we? It's really all about living or death. You know what? To be honest, I, I almost say that death, is does it doesn't bother me because, <laughs> you know, once you're dead, you know, if you're spiritual, you know, you're in another world, right? right. And it depends on your spiritual belief system. But it's near death that bothers me. I mean, if I die suddenly, boom, lights out, done, you know, fine, yes, you know, my family's going to be uh, upset and there are other different, you know, uh, repercussions of that. But for me, you know, if I think selfish, you know, I'm done. I'm on the other side of the game. But that doesn't bother me as much as near death. You know, what if I get a stroke based on my lifestyle choices and my genetics? What if I get, you know, a heart attack and they're able to save me and now I have to live with the pump that only works 10%? And I'm short of breath. I can't go skiing, which I love. I can't golf. I can't go and run after my kids and, and play ball game with them. I mean, these are the things that really bother me, right? So death, you know, even though we create a big buzz about death, you know, death is, you know, it's, it's okay. But what about near death? You know, what if you have people with stroke laying in our nursing homes or, you know, somebody you're taking care of for 20 years, those experiences are the experiences that really emotionally get me more motivated, give me more strength, because it's not death truly that really bugs me. It's the near death. And I think if we can lead a disease-free life, an active life, a life where we can at least enjoy till, you know, our time's up, you know, that's what we're aiming for. That's what's causing even financial institutions, you know, the money. It's not per se death. It's the chronic diseases, you know, it's the managing the slow diseases like high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, congestive heart failure, you know, slow cancer. And then these are, we're dying, you know, patients are dying every day and we're spending gazillions of dollars in trying to save this and we're not able to improve their life quality. So I think the key here is that if you get on the prevention bandwagon, early, you can have a healthier life. Well, I think that totally paints the right kind of picture. It's that in-between place living with the disease that is it's not desirable. And I feel that with your book, it's really a wonderful education, your heart house, the website, and certainly this time you've spent with us this morning, Dr. Manchenda. I really do appreciate it, and I trust that we have really touched hearts literally in terms of being inspired and making a decision to be more healthy. Thank you, Kate, and thank you for having me, and you've been a wonderful listener, and I'm going to learn that from you today, (laughs) how to listen to people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so greatly. It's really been a true gift to have you join us this morning.